privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. All hit radio. To the X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from the snowy studios of Relmar McConnell Media Company here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And we're about 30 minutes away from Buffalo, New York, where they were lambasted with over six feet of snow in the last 24 hours. And it's not over yet because there's another lake effect squall that's going to be lambasting them again. My good heavens. As I was talking to our next guest, whose name is Evan Padone, we're going to send him down some snow so the people at the Florida Paranormal Society will have some for Christmas. And Evan, welcome to the Exxon, my friend. How are things in Florida? Thank you. Uh, they're great down here in Florida. Rob, I want to thank you for having me on your show. Uh, it's a privilege, and I look forward to uh, to a good talk with you. Well, it's it's our great pleasure. Um, we have a lot of good friends in Florida. WPGS 840 in Titusville was one of our first stations when we started uh, with the network, uh, Ed Shiflett down there and all the crew. And, of course, whenever we go on a wonderful Princess cruise, we always go down to Fort Lauderdale and take the cruise and just enjoy the beautiful Florida sun for at least 10 days. So uh, our heart <laughs> is down in Florida. Uh, now, tell me about the, the Florida Paranormal Society, Evan. Sure. Um, the Florida Paranormal Society, I founded it actually with my wife. Um, and we, we are gurus uh, into the paranormal. Um, my, my, my novels uh, and my background, um, I, I've been studying the paranormal now for about 15 years. And my wife, uh, her degree is in investigative journalism. So we decided to uh, form a society uh, here in Florida that uh, that would focus on different genres of the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's cryptozoology, lost cities, 
uh, ghosts and entities, extraterrestrial life, things of that nature. And there really wasn't anything like that here in the state of Florida. So we decided to, you know what, since there isn't one, let's go ahead and start one up. Wow, fantastic. Um, so, so you basically, or I should say, you and the other members of the Florida Paranormal Society are like uh, the place to go when it comes to investigating the paranormal from A to Z. Uh, that's correct, and well, that's what we're aiming to be. Mm-hmm. Um, our society's been growing leaps and bounds, uh, and we do partner with other societies. So we're not, um, we, we're, we try to be all-inclusive, and mm-hmm. we try to recognize the past successes of organizations that are bigger than ours right. um, to work with them because we're, we're all looking for the truth. And uh, recently, the Florida Paranormal Society has worked with the BFRO, mm-hmm. uh, the Bigfoot Research Organization. Uh, we actually performed an expedition uh, about a week or so ago in the Miyaka River State Park and uh, found what we believe or potentially to believe uh, to be uh, Bigfoot or primate hair. And we actually sent it off to the BFRO to go ahead and do further analysis. What is Bigfoot? Is Bigfoot actually a a, a myth? There are many people who say, all right, Bigfoot, there's no proof. So how can it be real? Maybe it's just a myth. Other people are saying, well, what it is is actually a sighting of those people who give up society and and live in, in the forest and are very elusive. And yet there's other people who say, well, Bigfoot is real. We just haven't been able to identify what Bigfoot is at this time. Yep, and, and that's kind of, that, that, that's definitely the boat that I, that I uh, follow in terms of my belief. I mm-hmm. believe that uh, Bigfoot, or down here in Florida, they actually call it the skunk ape, which is a subspecies of Bigfoot, right. kind of like the Eddie uh, in Nepal. Um what we what we believe, or what I believe, the Bigfoot to be is, is a primate, and um, that is very very elusive. Uh, and actually, in my novel Expedition Everest, I went in depth uh, on the scientific attributes that, uh, or the physical characteristics mm-hmm. that this creature would have that would be able to avoid detection. Uh, and I made a a case, I guess you could say, the case for Bigfoot. Right. Uh, how it would be able to avoid detection. Um, for example, like its hair which it could be of that of a polar bear's hair, very mm-hmm. similar, where a polar bear won't go, uh, show up on thermal camps. Um, and therefore, you know, when you ever watch a show like Finding Bigfoot, right. they're always using infrared camera or mm-hmm. thermal camp. And my theory is the reason why they're not able to detect a Bigfoot using that kind of equipment mm-hmm. is because their their hair insulates it and protects them ah. uh, from the environment and therefore it's not picked up. Evan, stand by. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, ExoNation, we're going to hear a lot more from Evan this hour. We're talking about the paranormal. Evan is the gentleman responsible for the, paran- the Florida Paranormal Society. Their website is floridaparanormalsociety.com. And Evan and I will be back on the other side of this two-minute break. Don't go away. I'm Rob McConnell, and welcome to the X-Zone, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Today on the X-Zone, do vampires really exist? Do vampires really exist? 
In creating Dracula, Irish author Bram Stoker, who lived from 1847 to 1912, may have drawn on stories he heard as a child about the cholera epidemic that hit London and Paris in 1849. As in times of plague, there were many cases of hasty burial of sick bodies which were not really dead but in a deep sleeper coma. Stoker's idea about vampires could have been fueled by reports of the so-called dead tapping on the coffins, turning in their graves, or showing other signs of life. Welcome back, everyone. Evan Padone is our special guest this hour. He's with the Florida Paranormal Society. They're based in Tampa, Florida, and is a leading research society, especially in all facets of the paranormal, including cryptids, lost cities, apparitions, myth, legends, treasure, and the unknown. Led by cryptozoologist Evan Padone, uh, he conducts expeditions and records them in a documentary-style format. He's the author of Expedition Everest, and he leads his team throughout Florida paranormal hotspots in a quest to discover the truth about many paranormal reports. www.floridaparanormalsociety.com is their website, and uh, welcome back, Evan. It's great talking to you. Um, all right, so why is Bigfoot called a skunk ape? In Florida, <laughs> Yeti and well, Sasquatch in, in the West, or are they are they all are they all offshoots of a of a species that has yet to been discovered and accepted by the scientific community? Well, you know the reason why they call this skunk ape here in Florida uh, mm-hmm. is because it supposedly has a distinct smell. Um, uh, when you when you come upon it, I, it smells like a skunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different theories on, on why it has that smell. Um, if, if you've, you know, you've been to Florida, yeah. I don't know how much time you've actually spent out in the swamp, but in the swamp we have sulfur, sulfur deposits, or you can have a strong sulfur smell, right. especially from the natural spring. And it makes sense that this, that this animal, this primate, would obviously spend a lot of time in the swamp and therefore pick up these types mm-hmm. of smells. Um, even like uh, you know, the founding youth is believed to uh, reside in Florida. At least I don't know if you believe in the Ponce de Leon legends or have studied it a whole lot. But if you go to St. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine um, is the the tourist destination, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. for the uh, the fountain of youth. And if you actually go to that spring there, um, the water has a distinct sulfur egg egg smell, yeah. and so therefore skunk egg. Gotcha. Um, now, when it comes to these uh, these different subspecies around the world mm-hmm. and the different names that are uh, attributed to them, uh, whether it's Sasquatch or, or Yeti, uh, these are just the different uh, in cultures and locales giving a name to a creature that, when described, matches up. And the interesting thing that I find about that is that you actually have cultures around the world that give a very similar description of a hominid, of, of, of an ancient hominid that's extremely large, uh, that um, has strong physical characteristics that are very similar. And if anything, what I think that that does is it further validates the Bigfoot phenomenon, because you're not having just an isolated event like a Jersey Devil mm-hmm. or a Mothman. Um, which is much more geographically localized. I mean, there are some events 
around the world, or I guess you could say that there that those creatures could possibly have um, a subspecies or, or something similar in, in different locales in Europe and as well the United States, mm-hmm. but nothing quite to the extent of Bigfoot. Bigfoot has uh, different cultures from around the world that have been able to go ahead and describe a, a, a similar a similar primate, and I think that validates it. Uh, and when you actually look uh, at the expansiveness, see, a lot of times people go, well, shouldn't we have seen it by now? Shouldn't we have this thing on camera? Well, that that um, makes a lot of sense, you know, that, that question. Yep, and that, that's it. And the thing is, what people forget is, they forget how much wilderness is out there. Mm-hmm. Because if you actually, I, I don't know if you've uh, heard of the, the Western, uh, well, I'm sure you've heard of it, the Western Lowland Gorilla. Yeah. And in 2008, this is one of the, the case, cases I put in my novel, Expedition Everest, they thought that the Western Lowland Gorilla's populations were dwindling uh, in the sub-50,000 range uh, in 2008. They, they thought that uh, the populations have dropped tremendously and that these things were going to be, I mean, 50,000 in the world, in the entire world. And they thought that these things were going to be on their way to extinction. Well, an expedition was led into the Congo in 2008, and they discovered 125,000 of them. Okay. So how does 125,000 primates mm-hmm. Uh, get discovered, and, 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 and where we thought this, this gorilla was on its way out towards extinction, we, we do an expedition into the Congo, and we discover 125,000 of them. Now, if you're going to look at the vast expanses of Canada, for example, the, the population density, you have a country that is immense. It is larger than the United States. So for, uh, you know, it's almost 10 million kilometers, yeah. in size, and you have a population of the size of the state of California that reside there. So imagine they're basically pop, the population, you know, the state of California being populated and the rest of the United States being barren barren land, woods, uh, and, and, and no population whatsoever. Well, it, then it becomes very easy to see how a Sasquatch could reside in Canada and go undetected because you have a huge swath of land that is largely untracked and, quite frankly, is uh, unexplored. Mm-hmm. And if you were to look at Russia, uh, another very, very large country. I mean, Mother, Mother Russia's huge. <laughs> Let's give them their props. Oh, so she is. Yeah. You have a country that is just gigantic, yet has a population that is um, half of that mm-hmm. uh, of the United States. So once again, you're talking about a country. Uh, imagine, you know, United States with half the population, and uh, and all of Canada being uninhabited. So it becomes. Uh, it, I mean, drawing comparisons between population and square mileage. So you can really easily see how a small number of these animals, whether it's a thousand, two thousand, maybe even five thousand could theoretically go undetected, especially if they have adapted evolutionarily. Um, so, if, if that's, you know, my theory is that they've adapted to evolution mm-hmm. to be the perfect, uh, to be in perfect harmony with nature. So, their, their fur insulates them, which would also make it difficult to discover 
through thermal imaging. Uh, their hair, maybe they have some kind of active camouflage. Believe it or not, there are mammals that have uh, camouflage, yeah. whether it's a changing of their fur to mimic their environment, uh, like the ermine, uh, or maybe even something where it's seasonal, like an Arctic fox. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are uh, there are these abilities to where it can it can camouflage itself. Let me ask you something. What about the Roger Patterson film of Bigfoot. What is your what is your opinion of that footage? It's a love hate relationship, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's I love it because of the attention mm-hmm. that it draws to to, to Bigfoot. Sure. What I would love for and I and when when it comes under a microscope, mm-hmm. uh, when you when you really analyze that film, there are anomalies that would say, hey, this is real. Um, because, you know, you, cer- you see certain things like where the mouth opens, which right. is very interesting. You see muscle movement, which would be hard to go ahead and replicate that at a time frame. The, you know, they're adamant that it is that it is legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the couple of problems that I have with it, though, is that, um, is that I would, it's just not enough. It's, it's it's not a hundred percent clear, obviously, and it's it's a little it's a little it's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's a very frustrating piece because me personally mm-hmm. is that I am I, I have to believe I have to I have to have more. I want more than what that film gives me. But at the same time, you know, there there they have analyzed the film, and it actually turns out to be a, a female Bigfoot. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that uh, that that uh, that data. Yeah, they I look have. at the female Bigfoot because they actually look at it under a microscope and they they really analyze the footage. You can actually see female attributes mm-hmm. on the Bigfoot. So it really becomes well, wow! If, who would make a female Bigfoot? You know, forty, fifty years ago, and uh, and who would add this, this muscle tone and, and this uh, and these muscle movements on this creature, and the fact that the mouth opened. So I mean, it's pretty in depth, and it's pretty uh, it's, it's pretty it's pretty in depth for for that time frame. But like like I said, it's just it's, it's very very it's a very frustrating piece because I I want more. Sure. sure. Um, Loch Ness monster. Mm-hmm. You know, like other aspects of of the paranormal, in the news one minute, not in the news for for weeks, months, maybe years. Bigfoot, the same thing. Loch Ness monsters. Uh, Nessie, what is Nessie? Is she actually a misidentified creature? I don't believe so. Um, I believe that Nessie is a is a plesiosaur or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, probably migrates um, and it has some kind of uh, migratory pattern. Where I mean, let, let's face it, Loch Ness is very deep. It's very murky. Yeah. Um, and how, I mean, I, I go on the water all the time and I never see a shark, you know, I mean, very rarely do I ever see a, yeah. uh, a shark and I've never seen a great white or a, uh, or a tiger shark and I've been on the water my whole life, mm-hmm. you know? So when it comes to, especially when it comes to sea creatures or, or, or animals or, or cryptids in the sea, you have an extremely immense area. I mean, we cannot find an airplane that. Uh, that you know, unfortunately, crashed. Uh, uh, you know, Malaysian you know, Airlines, the crash that happened yeah. with Malaysian Airlines. Mm-hmm. 
So with our state-of-the-art technology, uh, we can't find an airplane in, in the ocean. Listen, you and I so, have to take our news break. Please stand by, Evan. Great having you with us. ExoNation Evan Padone is our special guest. He is the founder of the Florida Paranormal Society. They're based in Tampa, Florida. Their website is www.floridaparanormalsociety.com. And Evan and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, Exxon Nation, you can listen to the Exxon 724-365 at exxonradiotv.com. I'm Rob McConnell, and welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Today on the X-Zone, the Great Lakes Triangle of North America. Found in the heartland of North America, these landlocked yet connected lakes, which eventually empty into the Atlantic Ocean, have become the scene of more mysteries involving ships, aircraft, people, UFOs, ghosts, and phantom ships than the Bermuda Triangle. One sixteenth the size of the Bermuda Triangle, Lady John Graves Simcoe was the first European to chronicle the strange orbs of light that have been seen above and below the waters of Lake Ontario. First Canadians tell of great cities which surrounded the Great Lakes where men flew without wings. The Great Lakes Triangle of North America, one of the world's greatest mysteries, right in our own backyard. one 800 7035 worldwide toll-free. My email address is xzone at xzoneradiotv.com on all social media sites, xzoneradiotv. And our main website where you can listen to the show 724-365 as well as get the latest news from the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology, www.exoneradiotv.com. My guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Ed Padone. He is with the Florida Paranormal Society. They're based in Tampa, Florida. Their website is www.floridaparanormalsociety.com. And um, let me see, they are, they're also available on Facebook at, par, at florida.paranormal.society. And Ed is the author of Expedition Everest, which is available on Amazon.com. How about UFOs? What kind of investigations has the Florida Paranormal Society done when it comes to those strange lights in the sky? Well, uh, as you know, in, in, in Florida, Florida is a, a hot spot mm-hmm. for paranormal activity. Um, what we do is when we do our expeditions, uh, um, we try to go to locations where there have been recent sightings and do uh, investigative work. Uh, recently, we traveled down to Cape Coral um, and done some, some, some general expeditions down there, especially when there was a lot of sightings um, relatively recently uh, that were reported through MUFON. So, um, but you know, it's interesting because the UFO phenomenon is very, it's, it's still very, very taboo. Uh, I think people will be more prone to go ahead and actually report a Bigfoot sighting or, mm-hmm. or a Loch Ness monster sighting than they would saying that they saw a UFO and were green men from Mars. Yeah, but, so, but you know, you, you, I, I can understand the skepticism of the public as well as the ever-increasing skepticism with mainstream media, because you've got people from different organizations that are saying, well, you know, there was a, there was a, a UFO over the city of Miami that was the size of three football fields, but nobody saw it because it was invisible. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think that that helps out paranormal investigators mm-hmm. or, or the cause for people that maybe want the truth or the perceived truth behind the, the UFO phenomenon. Right. And, you know, there's, there's a couple things here because my background, I was in the Air Force and I, I was in aerospace. Uh, I was in aerospace propulsion. And so I'm very familiar with sure. what our aircraft in the United States military can do. Um, when I was actually in the, uh, the Air Force, though, I became uh, associated with a couple people that claims to have uh, seen uh, technology that was, that was rather impressive. Uh, actually, one tech sergeant uh, that I knew um, claimed to have actually worked on aircraft that were alien aircraft, hmm. um, which was which was rather um, peculiar to me. Um, and then the next, and then I had another uh, person when I was actually down at Nellis Air Force Base. Now, if you're not familiar with Nellis Air Force Base, yours Nellis Air Force Base uh, manages Area 51. And um, I was really, really excited to go down there actually for this course. And, and the course that I was studying was um, for uh, aerospace propulsion units uh, on the F-15 and F-16 fighter jets. So I go down to Nellis for this for a follow-up course. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in the course, um, an airman, uh, you know, I, could, I couldn't help myself. I, I had to ask, you know, because <laughs> when I was checking into my hotel, there was a retired military guy who was doing an investigation on Area 51, so I thought, what the heck? Sure. Uh, let, let me ask. I go, have you seen anything, you know, uh, out of the ordinary? <laughs> you know, and it, we're in uh, our training class, and there's only four of us. And uh, it was a small, small class. And he goes, you know, Evan, I'm going to tell you what I saw. And uh, and I was going to tell you what I was told. And he saw an aircraft that moved entirely silent. That was an actual aircraft that you would describe as a UFO, uh, as a the typical triangular. It was a... Um, uh, craft mm-hmm. that made no sound but a light hum that came over the base and took off very, very rapidly, once again, making no sound. And uh, and he asked his shop chief about it. Yeah. And, uh, and his shop chief told him just to forget what he saw, that it was our aircraft but, and, and there's nothing more to it. So, okay. are, so are you are we are you saying then that a lot of these UFO sightings that people are mistaking for extraterrestrial are really our own craft that have yet to be publicized? There's no doubt about that. Um, that's, the United States Air Force, United mm-hmm. States military. It, I'm not talking about the F-22s or the F-35. Right. I'm talking about the stuff that you don't ever get to, to see or hear about. Uh, it's it's much farther advanced than any other country's uh, aircraft. No, sorry, without a doubt. I actually wrote a, I wrote another novel, uh, a political thriller, called Assassin's Mace. And... In Assassin's Maze, I actually kind of, I I, I lightly dealt into our top secret program. 
Um, and, you know, I don't want to get off the paranormal uh, topic, but I, I talked about our top secret programs and the capabilities of our aircraft mm-hmm. uh, in, in that. What, and, and once again, this is fiction. This is not like I'm giving, like, I, I have privileged knowledge to a top secret aircraft and I'm giving you the specs on it. But the, the point that I'm making is that um, a lot of these sightings are, in fact, without a doubt, United States military aircraft that are able to do amazing things, uh, is my belief. However, the question has to be asked, where did this technology come from? Because the technology is so advanced, Mm -hmm. it is not in the normal realm of of, of our scientific capability, our scientific well, understanding. Maybe, so, maybe not the not the broad knowledge of the scientific community and the scientific knowledge, but is it possible that there are that there are groups of scientists who are developing specific projects that to anyone else but this selected group would be totally un, un, unbelievable that that our scientists from this planet could actually develop this scientific um, or, or this type of craft, this type of propulsion system, that it has to be extraterrestrial? Is it possible? Well, it's possible, but I would say it's highly unlikely. Why? And what I would, what I would use is the advancements that have been made. If you look at history, when it mm-hmm. comes to the history of flight, and you look at the Wright brothers, up until the 1920s, and even to the 1930s, even in World War II. I mean, we were we were propeller-driven aircraft. Yeah, except uh, towards Germany, the end. Except to the uh, towards the end of the war, when the jet engine came into play. Well, when the Germans and the Germans were really trying, making leaps and bounds, yeah. uh, improvements uh, in that field. Um, now, what, what was very interesting, though, what is very very interesting, is in 1947 mm-hmm. when the when the Roswell crash happened, okay, and a lot of things happened at that time frame that was very, very interesting. For one, you had the Army Air Corps switch over to an Air Force, mm-hmm. number one. And then the technology improvements after that event, if you actually look at the technology improvements when that, from that, when that event mm-hmm. supposedly happened and some of the transitions that happened in that time frame, you know, in 20 years we landed on the moon. So, yeah, be, be, you're saying we landed on the moon, but the Russians beat us to the moon. Well, you know, so okay. so how do how do you know how do we justify that statement? Because the Russians landed a, a robotic craft on the moon in 1959. That you know that is true. That is true. One of the things that I find, you know, you also have to understand that there's a lot of espionage going on at that time. It wasn't like mm-hmm. I don't, you know, the United States. United States intel community, the United States military, it wasn't under lock and key. I mean, we know that the, the Russians uh, were able to get uh, our information for our atomic weapons and so forth. It's possible that they, you know, when it comes to this space race, mm-hmm. it's it's quite possible that they could have gotten access to some of our uh, our technology. Well, or or, or, or the Americans got a hold of the Russian technology. Well, now that's a conspiracy theory, but it's I guess it's possible. Sure, sure. Why I not? mean, the Russian technology, but you know, if we, the Russian technology was far inferior. Actually, I mean, they actually got a, a, a head start. But how can, how can you say it was inferior 
when they had the first satellite in orbit, they had the first man in orbit, they had the first craft on the moon way before America. So how can you say their technology was inferior? Well, I'm talking about, you know, that's a great argument, actually. When you're looking at the space, right, mm-hmm. they, jumped, they jumped out ahead. But I would be careful to mistake... I would be careful to put technology in the terms of just the space race and not in terms of the microprocessor um, and computer mm-hmm. advancements. So, you know, if, if we're talking just in one field, sure, they, they got a, a, a head start on us. But if you're talking about, you know, developing the nuclear weapon, the atomic weapon, um, and developing going into the microprocessor mm-hmm. in the computer age, I really don't think there's a comparison. I, I think that the United States, by far and large, well, maybe well, at, maybe at, maybe at one time I, I I would have agreed with you, but now with China, Japan, and India having satellites orbiting the moon that are actually doing surveys to to mine and to bring back to Earth helium three, and you've mm-hmm. got the United States actually doing very little when it comes to comes to this. You know, I think at one time the United States because of a PR uh, push by President Kennedy, you know, was ahead. And don't forget, it wasn't the Americans that uh, that developed the rocket power. It was the Germans. Von Braun was oh, brought definitely. over. So, you know, so you know, I look at the whole picture. I just don't look mm-hmm. at certain little slices and, and base my entire hypothesis on that. You know, instead of going to Mars, that... No one else is going to, for for many good reasons. Why isn't America up on the moon trying to bring back well, helium three three and solving the energy crisis? Why? Well, who says we're not? You know. Well, you hey, listen. If we know that if we know that the if we know that the Japanese, the Chinese, and India are up there, believe me, believe me. The other countries would be very quick to say that America was up there as well. The American space program in, in, no spe- in no specific area is doing anything like that. And that's easy to, that's easy to find. That's easy to confirm. That's easy to follow. And I'm, I'm going to actually dis- disagree with, with you on this, and here's why. What, what we're referring to, I mean, what we're referring to is, is, is knowledge that is, is largely available versus what you don't know what the United States military is, is performing. What I can say is that, is that the United States, the United States Space Command and those entities are, are, are I, would, I would say, from my insight, are not taking a back seat to any of these other countries. Well, maybe, maybe, because, in, maybe in, strategic, uh, in strategic arms... I agree, but if the United States was doing so great in the space race or the space exploration, why is the public sector getting involved? Because the government isn't doing as much as it should be. Well, you know, the, the, the private sector is, is a necessary development. I mean, you, you have to you have to support your private sector, and I think that there's a lot of industries to be had from the private sector getting involved uh-huh. in, in the space race. Um, I think that the private sector has proven in a lot of different ways that it can be superior to government in terms of 
certain certain industries. Mm-hmm. On the same note, it's also best to not exclude the private sector and, and look at them more as a partner when it comes when it comes to uh, when it comes to space in that industry. I mean, regardless, I mean, if you look at even companies like Lockheed Martin or Boeing, mm-hmm. I mean, these are private sector companies that are partnered with the United States government. Uh, in Stunkworks, for example, of Lockheed Martin to develop amazing technology that, you know, right. that is quite frankly astonishing. So, you know, by working in harmony with both the private sector and, and the government, mm-hmm. you know, can work in harmony to, to reach a common goal. But, but, but when but it comes to what China is yeah. doing and what Russia is doing, and India what, is doing, and Japan is doing, but they, but you, you but that doesn't mean that we haven't. That does not mean you got to bear in mind. We went on the moon fifty plus years or forty, what forty years ago, forty four, yeah. forty five years ago. Yeah. So, and that doesn't that does not mean. I mean, I'm not going to tell. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we haven't been back either. I mean, we were there what five times, six times. I mean, we were to the moon quite a bit, and. It doesn't mean that we've just... Yeah, but once again, once again, we've got to take our, our final break. But once again, Russia was there first. And people remember the people who've done it first. Nobody remembers who came in second, third, or fourth. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And... Um, if you'd like to find out more about Evan's uh, organization, it's www. Exxon Nation, uh, Evan Padone is our special guest. He is with the Florida Paranormal Society that is based in Tampa, Florida. Their website is floridaparanormalsociety.com, and Evan is the author of Expedition Everest, which is available on Amazon.com. You know, Evan, uh, don't take me wrong. Uh, I I understand the importance and the significance of having the first man on the moon. And it took a lot of of thought. It took a lot of hard work and dedication, as well as bravery of those who were involved in the space program. I'm not taking that away from, from the United States at all. It's just that 50 years or 51 years or 52 years later, you know, it seems that the focus has gone away from the moon. The, you know, everybody's complaining about energy. And yet when we know for a fact that the element helium-3 is on the moon, it's, it's in plenty supply on the moon. And the only, the only situation is how do we get it, either refine it on the moon or bring it back so that we can... You know, take the take the noose off the neck of the energy crisis system. To me, this would be more important than going to Mars or, or you know, some of the other aspects that the government is getting into. And I and just uh, just to to say that you know, how do we know we're not going back to the moon or going back and surveying the moon and getting ready to to mine this this product? Wouldn't it be to NASA's advantage? or the government's advantage, or the private sector, that if they were doing this in order to get more funding, 
that they would say, listen, this is what we're doing. This is why we need more money. We want to be competitive. We know that China, Japan, and India are up there planning to to take this natural resource and bring it back. We want your money. We want your support. We want America to be there first. Doesn't that make sense? But nobody's doing it. Well, it definitely makes, makes sense. And I think that the United States can definitely perhaps, you know, be, when it comes to their strategic versus what, the, what is public, public knowledge, mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a gap, uh, number one. Number two, I, I think that that's part of the problem, too, is that you have a space command and you have an Air Force that mm-hmm. is actively involved with space, yet you, you, you don't know anything what they do. Um, do I'm it, sure but, you're familiar with um, the you know the space plane that goes up and is up was up there for over a year, mm-hmm. and uh, and no one knew what what its mission was. But do we need uh, to know this? Do we need to know this? Does the public really need to know? Well, I think that's part of the problem, though, is because if they don't know, they don't know what we're doing in space. But if and, the public knows, is, but if the public knows, NASA, so does so do the enemies of the United States. So well, and that and, and the thing is, is that that's a, that's the point is the the enemies don't the United States don't know what we're doing in space either. But on the same token, people are like, well, why aren't we like like you just brought up a valid point? Why aren't we going to the moon? Why aren't we doing this stuff with Helium Three? Yeah. And you know, and that would be something that would be public knowledge through NASA. So what, what my what my statement is is that I'm not going to say that we're not going to the moon. What I'm saying is that NASA is not going to the moon. And I think that there's a disconnect between strategic and what we do with Space Command and the Air Force versus which is, which is classified or, is, you know, is, is top secret, is, is right. not being released to the public uh, versus what NASA is doing. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we, have, we have space planes. I mean, you know, there is, the Aurora is a real aircraft. Yeah. Evan, uh, we, unfortunately, we've run out of time for tonight. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great hour talking to you. My very best to all the members of the Florida Paranormal Society, and I look forward to the next time you join us back here in the X-Zone. Until then, my friend, take care of yourself and uh, regards from Canada. Thank you very much from Florida, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. All right, take care. I'll send you down some snow. Exonation, Ned Padone has been our guest this hour, www.floridaparanormalsociety.com. And Devin is the author of Petition, uh, uh, Expedition Everest, which is available on Amazon.com. I'll be back on the other side of the news. Don't go away. <laughs>